You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. What I want to do, I want to invite you to, in your Bibles or on your devices, to the book of 1 Peter. I've often get asked, hey, how, how do y'all, this preaching thing that Bethel believes so much in, how do y'all do that? What is the point? And, you know, there's all different versions of how you could do this. And as we're about to do, it is what we would call, this is really the heart of who Bethel is and what we want to do. Any passage that we open, whether it's a gospel, it's a, a poetic book, whatever it might be, we want the main point that we will talk about to be the main point of the text. We believe that Scripture is our authority, and that's simply what we want to bring out. It is not me, it is not my authority, it's the Scriptures that we stand upon. So we want the main point to be the main point of the text. As we're reading, and this is going to be such a great example for us, is that we want to take a book or a verse or a passage... And first of all, before we ever take it to us, we want to say, well, what was Paul or, or what was John or, or what was David talking about to his original audience? What did it mean for them? We want to then be completely gospel-centered. And that, yes, the gospel saves us, but it is so much more than that. That The gospel is for everyday life and situations and circumstances. And then we take it to us. And so today we are going to begin walking through the entire book of 1 Peter. So please find your places there. And I'm going to give you a challenge at the end of today, something to go home and do. But today I need to set the stage. I, I need to set the platform to begin building the foundation because we want to understand this book better. So first of all, who, who wrote it? Well, he self-proclaims himself and he calls himself Peter. There's only one Peter mentioned in the the New Testament, and it is Simon who Jesus meets and changes his name to Peter. He's the fisherman that we looked at not too long ago when we looked at our Advent series of Gathered Round, and we saw that Peter was a man who was strong, he was determined, uh, but he was quick to act, but very slow to think. He was just an impulsive guy a lot of times, he's the one that twice Jumped out of the boat, didn't know what was about to happen, but he jumps out of the boat to get to Jesus. He's the one that sees Jesus, the guard's coming, pulls out his sword, goes after the guy's head, hits his ear. So Peter, he, he's quick to act, but he is often slow to think. He's the one that said, you know what, I'll never. If, anybody, if everyone else denies you Jesus, it will not be me. And what happens? Peter stands around that fire. And he denies Christ three times. But you remember that great moment where Jesus is on the shore. They're out fishing. Jesus has been laid in that tomb. And he appears to them on the beach. And around a different fire, Jesus takes him. And three times he asks Peter. And we saw those denials to be plunged into God's grace. Where he says, do you love me? He says, you know I do. And he said those three, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three times he denied. Three times Peter is reestablished 
as one of Christ's followers. And I believe that time on that beach, that Peter, from that moment on, he never lost the magnitude of what happened in that breakfast on that beach of Galilee. So that's who wrote this. Well, what's the, you know, we all would write a letter and we would all kind of, what's the main point? You're there in 1 Peter, flip all the way back to chapter 5. Peter's great. He actually gives us, he says, this is why I'm writing this book. And we're going to look at every chapter. But in chapter 5, verse 12, he tells us why he wrote it. It says by uh, Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, so he says, listen, it's not going to be long, we love that, extorting, or I want to encourage you and declare or to testify that this is the true grace of God. And then he says, stand firm in it. The New Living Translation says it this way, it says, the grace of God is with you no matter what happens. That Peter is going to build into us that the most important thing is the grace of God in your life. And no matter what is happening, it is always there. So that is his purpose. So what is the setting? What is kind of the backdrop of this letter? Well, he's writing this letter in about mid-60 A.D. We're not exactly sure, but it's around the mid-60s. And so Jesus has come. He's lived his life. He began his public ministry. Um, he has sent his, or laid his life down on the cross, laid in the tomb. He's raised back to life. And it's about 30 years after that moment. So for 30 years, things have been happening, and we get this letter. I believe that Paul, Paul has just been martyred. And I believe the church is looking around wondering, what do we do now? I mean, I believe they asked that question when Jesus uh, was laid in the tomb, and now when Paul has been martyred, they're kind of looking around going, our leader is gone. What is going to happen to the church? And no one better to step into the scene than Peter. I believe for those 30 years, Peter has been faithfully serving the church. I believe he was at the Jerusalem Council. I believe he's been in and around Jerusalem, and he has been faithfully serving the church. But what I believe we will see is that we, as we walk through this letter, it's almost that Peter can sense something coming. It's almost as if he, he can sense, he can feel, he's watching the, the happenings around him. You know, he's hearing news, and that Peter believes that something is about to happen. And I believe that Peter can sense a storm of persecution is about to happen to Christians. I believe he is seeing that there's about to be a turmoil that the church is thrown into. And it begins with the martyrdom of Peter. And here's why. You know, we see Peter is going to be writing to Christians, he'll say, to Jews and Gentiles who have been uh, scattered around. And we're going to look at that in detail today. And he's going to talk to five different areas. It's a general epistle. It's meant to be read by numerous people. And he writes this before a major event in history. See, Rome is trying to take over the world. They're trying to build their empire everywhere, and they are spreading out, and providences are being established, and they're sending Roman citizens to live in these areas to rule. But there is an emperor named Nero. Nero is in power, and Nero wants to leave his stamp. He wants to be the ruler of all rulers. 
And so he devises a plan. Nero wants to build a Rome that no one else can ever match again. And so what Nero does is he burns Rome, or burns Jerusalem to the ground. Burns it to the ground. But he knows that he has got to cover his tracks. So what does Nero do? He blames the Jews. So in July 67 AD, he burns that city to the ground and he uses the Christians as his scapegoat. And they're the ones that are blamed for all this. And then persecution of the church is about to run rampant. And as we will read through this letter, it's almost as if Peter can sense this coming. So what is Peter doing? He is going to be writing to a people that are struggling or about to struggle. He wants to anchor these people. He wants to anchor the truth of the gospel in them. He wants to encourage them, as he said, to stand firm in it. And what Peter does, he wants to take them back to that awe moment of the gospel. He does not want his readers to forget how incredible that the gospel is. And he wants to prepare them to suffer for that gospel. And listen, the Bible doesn't shy away from the idea of suffering. So yes, for 10 weeks or so, that's what we're going to talk about. Welcome to Bethel Bible Church. But there is not another book that talks about it more than 1 Peter. He's going to talk about it numerous times. And what we're going to do, the first nine verses will set up this book. So what I want to do, we're going to, in a minute, we're going to read the first nine verses, but we will only make it through the first two verses today. Then next week, I hope you will come because we will look at the next seven verses of that chapter one. But I want to ask you this. If you were going to write to someone that was suffering, or what would you, what would you say to someone that was about to suffer? And You know, we would probably say things like, you know, hey, what can I do to help or you know we're going to be praying for you during this time and we want to offer words of encouragement man i've walked through some difficult times and man i appreciated when people would come alongside and they would try to encourage me and peter is going to do that he is going to give some great words of encouragement in fact out of this letter he's going to give some incredible words of encouragement that we need to hear We need to learn, and we need to then be able to give other people. But Peter is going to do something else. What Peter is going to do that people that are about to or are suffering, he's going to give them a call to action. He's going to tell them to do something. But first, what he's going to do, he wants to remind people of who they are, and he wants them to know the power of their salvation. Now, why would he do that? If someone is about to suffer, it's almost as if he can sense that this storm is coming and I want to anchor these people into who they are and to prepare them for this. Well, why would he want to take them back to that moment? Well, it's because I think Peter knows something about human nature. Peter knows this. Peter knows that we have have an ability to appreciate the majestic. We really do. I mean, we have an ability to appreciate the majestic, and it is only matched by one thing, and then it's our ability to grow bored or to forget it. Back in, right before Christmas, I think it was 
maybe December 20th or 21st, there was a group called SpaceX. It's a private uh, group that is trying to do things into outer space. And what this group did, they... They launched, I think the guy created PayPal, and he's like this multi-gazillion billionaire. And uh, he, they launched a rocket that they were able to re-land safely back on the ground. And so they launched this rocket into space. It went further than any other rocket has done, and has come back and, and safely landed. And one guy said, it was, it, they said, well, what is this like? And he said, well, it would be like launching a pencil over the Empire State Building and having it land on a shoebox on the other side in a windstorm. Man, I was talking with my dad about this. We were watching some things on the news about it. And so he began recounting back what happened in 1961 when President Kennedy challenged the U.S. to put a man on the moon. And man, he was talking about, I think it was like eight years, the excitement that every time something was going to happen, everyone was glued you know, to their, their huge box TVs with the dials, no remotes, that you would go up and adjust the little rabbit ears with the tinfoil on it. And th- th- anything that was about to happen, everybody wanted to know about it. And then it came that day, I think it was just a few years before I was born, in 1969 when that space shuttle launched a team, when Neil Armstrong's group landed on the moon, and they estimated that half a billion people watched that moment happen. Man, he was just talking about, man, at that moment, all the watch parties that were happening where people were gathering in homes and in places that they could view this. And he said, uh, it was talking that, man, no matter where you were, that was the topic of discussion. Man, did you see that? Did you hear what happened? Did you hear what the president said? Did you see what? No, I'm saying, did you see those pictures, that thoughts and ideas and scenes that no one had ever seen before? And he talked about how, I mean, that just consumed the country. But then it wasn't just a few months and even years later that it was almost as if it was even not even mentioned anymore. In fact, we've got people that have been up in space for months and even years. I mean, we don't even think about it anymore. Now that we send people up, it's just kind of old news because we have a great ability to appreciate the majestic, but it is only matched by our ability to grow bored and to grow weary of it. And I think Peter understands this, and he wants to remind us of that, that one of the greatest things that we can do to prepare to suffer, and we're going to talk about that, is that we need to go back to that majestic moment and stand in awe of the power of our salvation. So First Peter chapter 1, let's read the first nine verses. Let me read it for us, and then we're going to go back and only look at two verses today, and this is how the word of the Lord reads. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with blood, may grace and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you rejoice, and though now for a little while, if necessarily, we have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. May God bless the reading and the teaching of His Word this morning. So let's go back and look at the first two verses. Beginning in verse 1, it says once again, Peter, that's who our author is, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he was a disciple that followed. He's then given a specific mission directly by Jesus, and he becomes an apostle. And he is writing to those who are elect exiles in the dispersia. And here's a map. It shows us it is going to go in a clockwise motion. He's writing this through Nepontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he's writing to all the believers in the churches in this area. And he calls them elect exiles. So first of all, what is an exile? Well, an exile is a person that has been scattered, that's not living in their homeland anymore. Now, Peter had could have two kind of ideas here. And I believe the first and foremost, going to the original audience, he's talking to Jews that are from Jerusalem that have been spread out all over what we would call now modern-day Turkey. This was your home, and now you have been removed, and you're living as exiles. But there's another meaning. If we look at this, and we're going to see through this book, he also has a spiritual meaning. He is also talking not only to Jews that are no longer living in their homeland. He's talking to Christians who are now scattered and who are living as aliens. A Christian is no longer a citizen of this world. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are now strangers. In fact, if you're a child of God, you are called to live cross-culturally. This world is not supposed to be comfortable. It is not supposed to be a place that we long for. In fact, this world is not supposed to be a comfortable place. It once was. Because you are now called. You're now called by the Lord to operate under a different set of values and rules. And with a different perspective. Our heart should be motivated by a different set of motivations, because we now serve a different king. As Christians, we should not feel like we fit in. Just think about that. Think about how much time and energy and resources and tears or whatever it might be that we put into that we don't fit in. And listen, we are not supposed to. We are not supposed to fit into this world, and we should stop trying more and more that this world would accept us. Listen to how Paul Tripp says it. He says, it's a wonderful thing when your heart grieves at places where other people's hearts don't grieve. Your heart rejoices at places where other people's hearts don't rejoice. It is a wonderful thing that that what's important to you is different 
And what's important to those who don't know, who do not know the Lord, all of that is grace. So here is Peter's point. As Christians, this world is not your home, and it should not feel like it. This world should not feel like our home. And he calls them exiles. He reminds them, listen, I know you're strangers and you are now aliens. Whether you're a Jew that doesn't live in Jerusalem anymore, or you're a believer, a follower of Christ that lives in this world, this world is not your home. But look at the adjective that he uses. He says, you are an elect exile. So he just used the E word. I know, this can make us a little nervous. What does he mean by elect? What does he mean by election? And what he's going to do, he's going to take that and he's going to use four different prepositional phrases. I had to look that up. Four prepositional phrases to help us understand what he means by you are an exile. And the first word he uses is elect. Now you've got to love Peter. I mean, he is beginning his letter and he is about to use election, foreknowledge, sanctification, blood. I mean, most people begin something like I did by telling a little story, kind of easing you into it. And then Peter just jumps in the deep end of the pool. And what does he mean by elect exiles? Because every word he uses is carefully chosen. So elect means that God has set his eyes or his favor on you. And Peter says that these exiles are elect. Peter is showing that they are, even though they are living as foreigners and strangers, that it is a part of God's plan. That God desired and he set his eyes on those living in exile. That God knows them and he knows exactly where they are. In fact, it is a part of God's plan and he put them there. He says, I ordained you at this moment to live as a stranger in this land. And it is my purpose. He says, that was my doing. And he wants to make sure he drives this deep. Four prepositional phrases. Look at verse 2. So they're elect exiles. It was ordained by God. He set his eyes on them, his favor on them. It is a part of his plan that they are to live as aliens and strangers in this world. And he says, according to, number one, the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of blood, may grace and peace be multiplied in you. So it says you're elect exiles. You are chosen by God for this. How did this happen? First of all, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. And this is the same term, if your Bible has cross-references, you'll notice in the margin, it will note 1 Peter 1.20, where it says, it's the same word where he says, and he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Meaning, God knew him. Not just a decision that Jesus would make in the future, but he knew him personally. And it's the same word. So Jesus, or he's saying here, Peter is saying that they are elect exiles. And it was according to the foreknowledge that God knew, not just a decision that would be made, but God knew. And how did he know? He knew forever. So God has known you 
And he has known me. He's known every exile that Peter was writing to. He has known them forever. And man, I want us to know the beauty and the comfort that that word brings. Meaning that everything you will face, God knows. Every place you are in, guess what? God knows. Every situation you find yourself in, God knows. Every pain, every frustration you have, God knows. Because all you are, all you will ever face, has been written in His book. And He knows. There is nothing that catches Him off guard. Think about it this way. Meaning if you are God's child, you will never sit outside the circle of His knowledge. Even in our rebellion, we are never outside the circle of God's knowledge. So the moments where we don't understand where it feels hard to love, where it's difficult to even just see God's purposes, even though we're crying out to know. Moments where the bad guys seem to win and everyone else is getting ahead and money is too little and the kids are rebellious. When that person we vowed to love does not love us back and when those that we work for don't seem to care. You know what? Our Father knows. And every one of those is written in His book. He knows. He knows the trouble you're about to step into. He is already there. He knows. So Peter's reminding these people, listen, you are elect. God chose you for this. And you're about to go through some troubles. But you know what? It was a part of God's plan. He already knew this was coming for you. So Christians are aliens in this world. God chose them for it. He chose us for it. And He knows everything about the struggle of living in a foreign place. And then the second one He says, in the sanctification. What does He mean there? So they're elect exiles according to, there you go teachers, that little drop down thing, according to the foreknowledge. In the sanctification means it means to be set apart, that you are set apart, you are taken out and set apart for a transformational process. Here's what I'm reminding these exiles you know what? You're living in this place that is not your home and it feels weird. But he says, you know what? You in this foreign land are still a work in progress. And Peter says, there is great encouragement in this. Their reality and our reality is that God sees us as He sees His Son. Man, I don't know if you, you if we use that enough to remind ourselves because we live in such a, a give-and-take society and that we have to earn and we have to work really hard to look good in people's eyes and then we have to do things to maintain that. But that every moment of every day, I am seen by God as He sees His Son. Do I fail? Oh my goodness, absolutely miserably. I had to confess even this morning to our prayer team of the horrible husband and dad I can be sometimes. But you know what? In that moment, even in my failure, I am seen perfect and holy and innocent. And that drives me to my knees because I realize I am not worthy. But we have not reached but we've not reached the place that we fully get to experience it because we are still struggling in these sinful bodies. We are tempted and we fall into that. But Peter reminds us that we are being transformed, not in our own power, but through God's Spirit. And there is such great hope in this, meaning husbands and wives, 
It means there is hope that your marriage, because the Spirit is still working on your behalf. There is hope because in those difficult friendships that you have or your children may have, that God is still working in that. And the, the bad choices that we choose to go down, those bosses that don't seem to understand, there is help and there is hope for the struggles that we are going on, even if that struggle is in our head. There is hope for you feeling hopeless and unloved and unneeded because you're not in this battle alone. God has come to you. And He lives in you to transform you. And He will not stop until He is completely satisfied that you have been completely transformed by grace. So He says, your exiles, your elect, that I've known you. Before the foundations of the world, I knew you. And I am transforming you for obedience. And I want you to know I'm like on the seventh time through trying to figure out how to make all of this work. The first time I went through this, okay, he, he chose me, he knows me, and now I need to go obey. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Until I dug a little deeper, and he's not at all talking about my obedience. He's talking about the moment that Jesus rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty to bring us to God. This is talking about Christ's obedience, not ours. And the Bible is full of talking about our obedience to the Father. In fact, it says in 1 John 15 and John 14 that those that who know Him, they know us by our love for Him, and those that know God will obey. And It talks a lot about our obedience, but that is not Peter's point here. What Peter is saying is that Christians are saved by the obedience, not of our own, but of Jesus. That we are saved by His obedience to the law, and we are saved by His becoming a curse on the cross because of our transgressions to that law. So Christians then, and even Christians now, we are chosen, calls us elect, we are fully known according to God's knowledge, we are chosen we are set apart to be transformed and He will not stop. And this happened not based on our own records, but on Christ's perfect record. It's for His obedience that we are able to do this. And then He says a strange phrase. For sprinkling with His blood. And in the Old Testament, what you would do, you would pledge your allegiance to God, you would sacrifice that animal and that priest would take that blood and he would fling it on you. And you would be covered in the, the blood of that animal to remind you of what was happening, to remind you of your vow. And Peter is saying, do not forget that we stand before God as righteous, not based on our own lives and our own accomplishments. It's on His obedience of His Son, and solely on His life and death. The sacrifices would remind the people that they were in constant need of forgiveness and cleansing. Every time you went through this, you were reminded, you would go home and that blood would dry on your body and you would look down and you would be reminded of your need of forgiveness and cleansing. So Peter is saying, you know what, no matter how deep our struggles are. I mean, I just watched the news this week of another pastor that makes a huge mistake that was probably built on a lot of small bad choices and he completely falls 
But I have to go, well, you know what? Even that man, he is not beyond God's reach. And that no matter how deep our struggles are, no matter how great our failure is, no matter how strong our weaknesses are, there is ongoing forgiveness through Jesus. And so hear that. That there is no end to his forgiveness. Because I know what, we can feel like, you know what, man, I've... I've asked forgiveness and I've said I'm sorry so many times about this. How could God give me another chance? Your disobedience can never outrun his forgiveness. So what does all of this mean? What is Peter saying in just the first two verses? I think this is the point. I've been asked many times, Mark, when were you saved? And I've given some answers, and, but this is what I now say. According to the scripture. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when He died on the cross. And as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved on May the 10th, 1983, when I heard the gospel again. I saw the horror of my sin and the eternity that I was headed to. And I sat on my parents' bed, and I cried out to God to save me. So do you see, it takes all three parts of the Trinity working together to bring us to God. It takes the Father choosing us. It takes the Son laying down His life for us. And it takes the Spirit bringing us to that point that we believe. And so Peter wants to take people back to that moment. That there is no question where their salvation is rooted in. Peter, first and foremost, wants his readers to be in awe of the power of their salvation once again. He wants to take them back to see because he knows that we are in danger of getting bored with it. That it's just something that we're supposed to go do on Sunday mornings. And it really doesn't matter much during the week because I've done something back then. He wants to take them back to that awe moment that we are so easily bored. And he wants to take us back to that majestic once again. And then notice the last phrase. May the grace and peace be multiplied in you. And that's Peter's prayerful wish that through this letter that we will look at many things, including the so many aspects of suffering, how to live under the authority of others. We'll talk about relationships between husbands and wives, how elders are to conduct themselves, and much, much more. But all of it, Peter wants grace and peace to be multiplied in all of us. So here's the challenge this week. We have kind of begun to set the foundation. Peter's five chapters. Read a chapter a day for the next five days. And then in one time, sit down in one setting and read the entire book from start to finish. So now, that's just the first two verses. And Peter begins by reminding his readers of who they are. That they are no longer citizens of this land. That everything has changed for them. God the Father has called them. God the Father knows them. He is doing something in their lives. That God the Father has a purpose and a plan for every pain and struggle and trial and even persecution. And Peter wants his readers to stand in awe of the power and the totality of their salvation once again. He wants to establish their identity and who they really are. So 
So before we conclude today, I want to give you a glimpse into next week. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about suffering. You know what? It can come in big, grand moments. And then it can come just when one of our children, you know, even gets, you know, feelings are bullied at school. No matter what the moment might be, that persecution comes. You know, Satan is a master of deceit. And I believe that Satan has two major weapons that he uses. And I stole these two words and I think they work well. He uses pleasure and he uses pain. In fact, Satan wants to keep you in a place where you actually see no need for God because you have everything you want. That you're doing everything you can to pursue the things in this world that make you happy. Peter's already gone after that. Listen, this world is not your home. And he wants to keep us satisfied where we see absolutely no need for God. Man, I have everything I want. I'm happy. Family's doing well. I can go do this. I can go enjoy that. And he wants to keep us in that moment of pleasure where we don't see a need for God. Or Satan wants there to be pain in your life so that you'll get mad at God. He wants to keep you at a place that you'll blame and you'll curse God for the things going on in your life. And think about this. When he can give you pleasure... And you see no need for God and he can then take that away. He wins on both accounts. Satan wants you to lose that awe that you once had for God's plan and salvation for your life. He doesn't want you to stand in awe. He wants you satisfied with the things of this world so that you see no need for God. Or he wants you suffering in trials and persecution and pain so that you turn from God. So no matter what you're facing today or maybe even tomorrow or the next week or next month, remember these two things. This is not your home. And it should not feel like it. We are strangers here and we should not feel at home. In fact, number two, your life is marching towards something. It's marching toward what Peter is going to call and we're going to look at it. He talks about that you are marching towards glory. And there is coming a day when the experience of that glory will absolutely overwhelm every dark thing that you've ever faced. So this week, as you read through 1 Peter, think about that majestic, redemptive plan of God and what He has done. That before the foundations of the world, He set His eyes on you. He centered His attention on you. He knew the moment you would be born And he knows the moment that you will take your last breath. And he knows every moment in between. There will be moments you love and you look forward to. And there will be moments that are suffering and trials. And Peter says, don't forget that God is Lord over all of them. So next week, next week, come back as we look at the call to action of what we'll do in suffering. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as believers, we gather and we open up your word and we are so thankful for it. We pray that we, that we use it well, that we use it accurately. That these world, words penned years and years ago are, are still relevant and, and meaningful in our life. As Father, this week, take us back. Take us back to that majestic moment, those moments of awe that that we used to be overwhelmed by your plan and your salvation 
in our life. That we so easily forget and get bored with. But Father, create in us once again that majestic beauty. And Father, is in your Son's name and by the power of your Spirit we ask this. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.